This week, my guest is Gina Gardner. After a skiing accident left her with a progressive disability, she's gone on to build top-performing teams in schools and now businesses. We talk about discovering the gift in every challenge you face, motivating your team and finding excellence. Welcome to episode 132 of the Marketing and Finance Podcast. This is the podcast for ideas and inspiration on marketing your business and growing your business and for discussing topics on all things finance. And now here's your host, Roger Edwards. Wow, another week and another episode of the Marketing and Finance Podcast. Thanks for downloading or streaming the show. I know you're bombarded with content from every angle these days, so I really do appreciate you choosing the Marketing and Finance Podcast. If you fancy coming on the show, do me a favour. Contact me through rogeredwards.co.uk or tweet me at roger underscore edwards. Please do it now before you listen to the rest of the show. I'd love to have you on as my guest. So let's get into this week's interview with Gina Gardner, a coach and speaker with a remarkable backstory. We chat about finding the gift in every challenge you face, looking for the catalyst for change, letting the team take responsibility for their own emotional and physical state, how to model by example, setting clear, explicit and shared expectations, and finding what better looks like and achieving the excellence missing in most organisations. As an inspirational speaker, corporate business coach and executive life coach, Gina works with emergent middle and senior managers and their teams to help people fulfil their personal and professional potential. Whether it's helping to develop confidence, leadership or empowering individuals to see themselves as the solution, Gina's 30 years of experience in the development of leadership has shown her that with the right perspective on life, there's always a means of achieving your goals. So let's get right into that interview with Gina here on the Marketing and Finance Podcast. Gina, welcome to the Marketing and Finance Podcast. Hello there. Thank you very much for inviting me to join you. It's an absolute pleasure, Gina. Tell me, where are we Skyping each other from today? I'm in Ardley, a little village just outside Colchester, which is the oldest city in the UK. And of course, I'm in Edinburgh, as always, an extremely wet and windy Edinburgh. In fact, I'm surprised you can't hear the wind slashing against the windows just beside me now. Gina, thanks very much for coming on the podcast. You've had a really wide and varied career, and now you're focusing on helping people find the best of themselves, helping people to create an amazing work-life balance. You also help people and you coach people to be the best that they can be. And I'd really like to dig a little deep into that today and, and find how the, the listeners of the Marketing and Finance podcast could benefit from your experience. But before we get to that, Gina, tell everybody a little bit about yourself, where you came from, how your career developed, where you're going, and basically... What makes Gina Gardner tick? I started life, my professional life out as a teacher. Mm -hmm. I'd always wanted to teach and um, I started teaching in Romford, which is just on the outskirts of uh, London. Um, I was very lucky to get promotion very quickly and I became a deputy head of a large school aged 28. Mm -hmm. I was appointed to be the catalyst for change and I was the youngest of our two on the staff. 
Um, and in fact, my appointment wasn't actually very popular with some of the staff. I'd been told not to apply by the head because they wanted a man. Oh, right. um, it was in 1984, and in those days, things weren't as PC as they are no. now. They wouldn't, um, they wouldn't get away with that these days, would they? No, they certainly wouldn't. No. They told the acting deputy not to apply because they were going to appoint a man, mm-hmm. um, and then they appointed me. And I was appointed very specifically to be the catalyst for change. Um, people were stuck in their ways. They'd been at the school a long time. And I started working with the head, John Hughes, a lovely man, um, and we started an agenda for change. Now, that was the September, in September 1982. In um, February 1983, I went skiing at half term. Right. I was a very competent skier. And p- listeners may wonder the relevance of this story, but it will part of the story, but it will come out later. Mm-hmm. Um, in those days, it was the fashion to have your skis as long as possible. And when I'd gone to the shop uh, in the Christmas holidays to buy skis, I'd been convinced that I should buy skis that were 10 centimetres longer than the ones I was used to. And so during this week's holiday, I had proceeded to wrap those 10 centimetres around my feet and I'd fallen lots and lots of times. And on the Thursday, I had a particularly bad fall. So I said to the people I was skiing with, a group of friends, I'm not going to ski with you tomorrow morning. I'm going to get my confidence back. I'd ripped my ski suit from crutch down to the ankle. (laughs) My earring had gone through my ear. I was in a bit of a state. So I spent the morning in St. Christoph, which is just outside St. Anton um, in uh, Austria, Uh and joined them for lunch. And they said, we found this fabulous new run. Come and join us. So... After lunch, we got onto the chairlift, and those of you that have skied will recognise how wonderful it is when you leave the valley floor and all the sound gradually disappears and all you're aware of is the majestic mountains around you. We got off the chairlift, and they took the wrong turn. And instead of having a nice, gentle run, um, we found ourselves at the top of the Schindlergratz, which is the most difficult black run in St. Anton. There was no way down other than going down the black run and I'd skied many black runs before so I took a deep breath and off we started and I'd skied about a third of it probably about 200 250 feet of it um, when I fell in the powder snow the big moguls on this ski run and I'd not wanted to turn and kept on delaying and delaying it's a bit of a metaphor for life really (laughs) Um, until I'd got into the powder snow and I'd fallen oh dear and eventually I joined them it took me about 20 minutes and each of them was sitting on a mogul rather like an elf sitting on a mushroom and I joined them I took my skis off and it was a brilliantly summer sunny day one of those really hot days and the top of my mogul gave way and I fell knocked myself out fortunately probably fell about 200 feet um, and there I was just in a heap in a, a bit that was flat the people that I was with skied to me I was insistent I wouldn't go um, in a blood wagon so I managed to get back down to the hotel and we traveled home the next day which was uh, really difficult I then went to the hospital was told I'd got concussion and over the next few weeks things began to improve so when it was time for the the Boris ski trip of which I was the deputy um, to go, I was told I could go. We went off to Switzerland on this occasion, um, and during the week I became more and more like Quasimodo. 
And at the end of the week, I felt very poorly, went and laid on the bunk and then very quickly found that I'd become paralysed down one side. That resolved over time and I got back to school by the May, I suppose, and had struggled a bit during the last part of the term uh, from the effects of the uh, paralysis and the initial accident. Um, and I managed to get to the summer holidays and was really relieved to get to the summer holidays. Mm-hmm. I got a phone call on the 8th of August to say that John Hughes had very suddenly and sadly died in his sleep. Um, and at that point, I became acting head. And by the following January, I had become the head of a school. And I made a decision that I wanted the school to be successful. And whatever happened, I didn't want my physical um, challenges um, at that time, much smaller than they were to become, mm-hmm. um, to get in the way. The school became very successful. I was at the school for 20 years. Um, my health deteriorated. I, um, I had two failed back surgeries and learned to walk twice as an adult, um, once during that time and once um, after I left headship. And the reason I tell this story is that the gift in all of the difficulty was that I created a style of leadership which was incredibly successful. Mm-hmm. And it was based on helping people take responsibility for their own emotional state and their own performance. And the result of that is that the school was incredibly successful. We were on the best 100 schools in the country list twice during my tenure as head. I'd love to think that I would have developed that same style of leadership if I hadn't been so disabled that I couldn't get my wheelchair through the classroom door. Um, I'd like to think I would have done, but I think I'm realistic enough to know that necessity was the mother of invention and the gift out of my disability was helping people to feel empowered to take charge of their own choices in a way that I'd probably have been too controlling to do if I'd had a choice myself. By 2004, my health had deteriorated very significantly and I was given an ultimatum by the um, my consultant um, that if I didn't leave um, the job, and by that time I was not only running my school but working for the National College of Leadership, the mm-hmm. London Institute, the DFES as an advisor, Ofsted inspector, threshold assessor. And all of those roles, not at the same time, uh, brought an income into school and also made sure that my school was at cutting edge. So I made the very difficult decision to leave headship. And for the first year, I worked on all of the programmes that I'd used to bring an income into school independently. There was a change of government and I became more and more disillusioned about what they were doing to education. And so I started to look at what was my skill base. I wasn't ready to sit and watch daytime television and retire. (laughs) What was my skill base? And I was a qualified coach. I'd done huge amounts of training and development for um, hundreds of schools around um, leadership. So I took myself off to do a research project. And I um, went to retail, um, manufacturing, financial industry, Um, local government, hospital, all sorts, to look at what were the issues facing them around people going into the world of work and becoming professional Mm grown-ups and how they grew their management and leadership right the way up to senior management level. Mm -hmm. The thing was that actually the issues were no different. It didn't matter what the widgets were. The issues were the same. 
It was how do you make people take responsibility? How do you get people to grow and to see the challenges, to see the, to look for the solutions rather than being problem dumpers? Mm-hmm. I needed credibility because people think that schools aren't businesses, although when I left, my budget was a, a million and three quarter. I, um, I employed a hundred staff. Um, and so I wrote a couple of books. Um, the first, Kickstart Your Career, which is for people leaving education, going into the world of work, and was around how to be a professional grown-up quickly. And the second, How to Manage Your Staff More Effectively. You can see really jazzy titles. Um, and that was designed <laughs> to help managers uh, manage themselves and others. And that gave me my calling card, gave me a bit of credibility going into the corporates. You said some really interesting things there, Gina, and it, and it takes a few minutes just to sort of get your head around everything that you've said. Obviously, it was a, at the time probably a, a minor fall that you had down the hillside, but obviously you create it created an injury in your body, which progressively got worse over time. And as you said, it led to a series of surgeries, and that obviously took a lot of um, recovery from. And, and And was it the fact that it was the it was the challenges that you faced recovering from this illness and facing the disability that it it put upon you that helped you to develop this approach to management that effectively inspired your teaching style i guess and ultimately inspired the 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 books that you've written is is that really the way it developed i think it is in every challenge and make no mistake there were times when it was incredibly challenging. Mm. Um, there's always a gift if you look. Mm. And what I had made a decision very early on that I was going to focus on what I could do and not what I couldn't. Mm-hmm. So my mouth works pretty well, as you can tell. <laughs> my brain works okay. My hands work. Um, it's the rest of me that there's a problem with. Mm-hmm. In a sense, the paradox is that when I was at home, I was incredibly limited. If somebody didn't leave a cup out, you know, for for quite a while, if they hadn't put a cup out from the cupboard and filled the kettle, I couldn't make a cup of coffee. But I could go into school and be completely effective because the things I couldn't do, there were people around me. Mm-hmm. But when I found I couldn't actually access my classrooms, I think there were only four out of the sixteen or classrooms that I could actually get into physically. I knew that I had to create a way of sharing a vision of what excellence looked like. Yes. Now, to start with, it wasn't the sequential structured training program that it became. It arrived like topsy, really. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the the saying that necessity is the mother of invention, I think, is incredibly true of my situation. It was in the trying to ensure that people didn't miss out, that mm-hmm. I was able to... Um, nurture and grow not only the children but the staff meant that I was looking for opportunities to do that and over time they became very structured and very sequential so that everybody at school teachers and non-teachers were involved in training programs all the time interestingly with the teachers they never left the lower ones they kept those going because they enjoyed them and got something out of them Mm. and they continued with the higher level ones um, and that was against a backdrop of significant union action right. and being told we could only hold one meeting a week. But because these were voluntary and because they were almost 
always Maltesers involved, people <laughs> prepared to come. Could, could you actually give me an example in, of this in practice, Gina? Because you mentioned before that one of the things you're trying to do is to get people to take responsibility for actions and for their circumstances. So you've mentioned teachers, you've mentioned the pupils. Is there an example you could give us where you've seen somebody doing something and your skill and your observation and your coaching has allowed them to to develop as a result? If we stick with school for a moment, although mm. I have not worked in school since 2004, but I think it gives you a really good example yeah. of how not only does this help the members of staff, but also help the organisation. And mm -hmm. I think that's important too. Teachers can only give their noticing formally um, three times a year. Right. Um, so it's the 31st of October. Depending on when Easter is, it's usually the 28th of February and it's the 31st of May. Right. And most teachers, particularly primary, which is where I taught, um, like to see their class through the whole year. So May time was always the time when you were likely to lose teachers. Right. My budget was the bottom um, cap allowance per capita per child of the authority because they assumed economies of scale, which actually they recognised later was not true. And I would I would have people, they would come to me, and even before it became um, a legal requirement, we used to provide a, a probationary training programme in that probationary year. And I had recognised that they needed to carry that on, and so we did the probationary year, and then we did a two-year stint of training following that, where I sorted out the agenda. And then at the end of three years, what would generally happen is I couldn't afford to give them promotion, but I'd given them an incredibly good training. So they'd go off and get another job. Mm -hmm. And in this particular May, I had five teachers come and these two have a particular voice who used to haunt me, which <laughs> would say, Gina, I need to have a conversation. Uh -huh. And they were all going off to, to go for promotion. And I said to each of them, Go and look at the school. At that time, um, a, a, an incentive point, that was the first level of management, would give them £594, which sounds nothing now, but in those days it was a, quite a lot of money. And I said to them, go and look at what they'll give you in terms of your development. And what I will do is I'll put on a training programme where you can help me shape the agenda if I can't deliver it, I'll find people who can. And that what I will do is make sure that you're ready to take the next step um, for promotion and that you're in, you're very well prepared and that you will have a range of skills that most people take much longer to gain. Those five people went and looked at several schools and actually stayed. And of those five people, three became heads and two deputies. Fantastic. So the school benefited because we kept them for much longer. In fact, one of them became the head um, after I left. But they also, what was important in terms of helping them develop this recognition that actually they were responsible for their own um, development was that they were very actively involved in setting the agenda. What I also did with them is made a created a culture where it was then their job to support and grow other people. Mm. So when investors and people came in, they were very complimentary and saw the training program as both innovative and exemplary. But what they liked most is that the standards tended to rise to the top rather than fall to the bottom. Mm -hmm. 
because everybody saw it as their responsibility to nurture and grow their colleagues. And I always looked for the very best people. They were all much better at their subject than I was. My job was to grow them and to push them into being the best whatever they were, maths teacher, IT teacher or whatever, and to help them develop the skills. So we we ran training programs on how to be a good mentor. We ran programs on how to coach people, how to hold people to account, how to receive and give feedback. And so as a whole school, everybody was very open to quite exacting and um, quite um, challenging professional conversations. Mm -hmm. The expectation is that you would always challenge performance that was anything less than excellent. And I guess by definition, there are certain environments where there hasn't been a leader like yourself in that circumstance, and therefore the staff, whoever they may be, haven't taken responsibility for themselves, and therefore there hasn't been that nurturing environment, and presumably that sort of environment is not as successful as the one that you created. I think all of us have got examples where we have either worked in or know somebody who's worked in an organisation where the leadership is poor. Mm. You have to model by example, have to set really clear, explicit, shared expectations, monitor performance and give feedback. And I think, you know, when I work in the organisation, I work in far, far different organisations, actually installing the same principles has shown time and time again that it really does work. When I used to work in big corporate, one of the things that I used to get quite frustrated about was the HR-imposed, I guess what they would call the appraisal system. And every year everybody had to have an appraisal and every six months they had to have an interim appraisal and people got uh, excellent performer or average or satisfactory or whatever it was and then at the end of the year everybody's pay rises were put into a computer program that came out with a bell curve and certain percentage of people had to be in the satisfactory bracket etc and it just felt to me as if it was a waste of time and all it actually ended up doing was demotivating people and almost by definition created more underperformers than it created performers now maybe i was just sucked into that i'm not i'm not a particular detailed person i just like to sit down and chat to people and encourage them and motivate them face to face whereas this seemed to be very i don't know data driven but it, am i completely off track here is or is no, there something actually I happening here that <laughs> they are very often tick box exercises they're going through the process mm. If you want to improve performance, you can't rely on two conversations a year. Mm. I think the first thing is that you have to create a culture where the expectation is that people will perform and perform well and know what that means in real terms. And one of the biggest problems, I think, is people are told that's not good enough or you could do better, but they don't know what better looks like. Mm. So creating a a shared understanding of what does excellence look like in the context of whether it's a school or a dental lab or a hotel or a gardens um, or a a picture framers or I work with a number of financial companies, the actual recognizing what does excellence looks like, look like and have a shared understanding of that. You can't 
but you can't actually expect people to deliver that unless they know what it is. Mm-hmm. And that is missing in most organisations that I've gone to work in, certainly before I've started working with them. I think the other problem is that people don't know what they want, mm-hmm. and so they don't recognise when that's people have succeeded or when they're struggling. And so performance management becomes a stick to beat people with Mm. rather than a platform to actually move the whole organization. So let me give you an example of how I've used it with organizations. Always, always there is a focus, which is the whole organization. So when I first started working with organizations, very often in the first year, what we have done as an organization is created the vision mm-hmm. and what we want the culture to be. And so part of the performance management has been that everybody is going to embody that in their day to day activities. So whether in a hotel you are behind the reception desk or you're in the, the restaurant or you're one of the function staff or a chambermaid, how can you embody the vision that you're going to make sure that all of your guests have a great time, mm-hmm. who have you know great customer service, and unpicking what that looks like. So at organisational level, at team level, and then individual level, how are you going to deliver that? What are the tasks? What are the expectations of you? And then it has to become part of the daily language that everybody uses. And when that happens, performance management comes alive Mm. and really makes a difference to an organisation moving forward. Yeah, you can see companies out there. I remember going on a trip, this is probably about 15 15 to 20 years ago now, to America to visit some very impressive companies. And one of them was the Ritz-Carlton hotel chain. And they have exactly what you describe. It's a top-down definition of what excellent looks like in terms of customer service. And they have this fabulous... um, uh, strap line that everybody adheres to and it is something like we are ladies and gentlemen serving ladies and gentlemen or ladies and gentlemen looking after ladies and gentlemen I don't yeah. think they use the word serving actually but it's something along those lines and I always thought that was a really nice way to put it because even though they these people are working for the hotel and they are giving a great customer experience to the guests it also acknowledges that they are special as well yeah. and the hotel really likes the fact that they're working there and putting a lot of effort in and giving the guests that great and and the whole thing came together so well and you could see the staff were gloriously happy to be working there and because they were gloriously happy to be working there they were giving a great service to the customer and the customers were writing fabulous reviews on TripAdvisor and and whatever and it, it was just an amazing amazing environment and yet you can go to other companies where it's quite obvious that there hasn't been a similar exercise, staff turn up, they're grumpy because they haven't got, like you say, a definition of what excellent means. They're waiting for somebody to tell them, therefore they're not giving a good service. The customers get upset with them because they're not getting a good service. And then, of course, they get bad reviews or bad press or bad PR or whatever it is. And it's light and day, isn't it? It is. I believe everything starts from the top. Mm. You've got to model the behaviours that you want. It's no good saying, do as I say, not as I do. Mm. And it's got to become like Brighton Rock. Mm. So it doesn't matter which part of the organisation. And this is true of any type of organisation I have now 
enough experience in enough different sorts of organizations to know it is possible to create it in any. Mm. So it doesn't matter where you go, who you talk to, in an organization that's working really well, everybody owns the responsibility and wants the organization to do well and gets pride from that. And I work with organizations where, you know, the, uh, for example, I was at Beth Chateau Gardens this morning, which is, you know, a very special gardens, nursery and um, uh, tea rooms. Mm-hmm. Everybody there, the seasonal staff, you know, and right the way up to the directors has a real pride in belonging to that place. Yes. And making sure that everybody who comes is seen as, well, you're my guest, you're Beth Chateau Gardens guest, but you're my guest and I want to make your experience a good one. And they've worked hard to create that. It's taken a bit of time um, and it's taken a big investment in terms of the directors working together and um, working with their staff to ensure that that is so. But the benefits of that are huge. And those people do not get well paid. Horticulture is not a well paid industry. So it's not based on monetary gain. It's It's based on a pride of doing a great job. Um, and feeling that you belong to something that's really special. And how did you make the transition, Gina, from effectively working in the school to where you are now helping companies of all shapes and sizes and industries of all shapes and sizes? How did you make that transition to helping everybody else like you are now? The first year I worked, as I say, within educational um, establishments. I then with my books, went and worked mainly in corporates, although I've always done life coaching and relationship coaching alongside. Mm. Um, I had three contracts that were supposed to um, fill 2009. And in January, the second week in January, I went from three contracts to no contracts in a week because of the recession. Mm. I'd already started to do some work with Essex University in their business school And I'd already started to work with um, some small businesses. Um, And the pattern with those businesses was initially that I would go in, troubleshoot, come out. Or I'd go in and run a course on communication or um, leadership and management and come out. It's actually with the hotel that I work with. I had been, they'd commissioned the university to, to, um, for a course on communication for the directors. And I went in um, and started the course and it became very evident quite quickly um, that actually that's not what they needed. And so I said to the directors, I can carry on and deliver it, but actually I think you need something else. And they were wise enough to say, right, stop, give us what you need. Um, I'm very fortunate. I have such a broad breadth of experience that I don't have to go in and do an off the shelf course. I can be very flexible. Right. So anyway, I worked with them, sorted out the issues, and I then disappeared. And about nine months later, they called me back and said, we've now got this problem. Um, And I said to them, well, look, you know, these could be avoided. How about if I come and work with you directors on a monthly basis? Um, If you don't use the time, that will carry forward. Um, And now, five, six years later, the hotel's incredibly successful. It's won awards. Um, It's much busier, much more profitable. And that was the model that I then picked up and started to work with. Um, sometimes it's it's very small businesses, one or two people, but but more often it's with with perhaps 
um, anything up from five to um, 50 people. Mm -hmm. And they're they're organizations who want to make the next jump, who um, have been established a while. Very often the companies I work with have either family or direct uh, friends involved at high management levels. So I help them manage the dynamics um, that can be a bit tricky with those. But all of them have in common that they are prepared to put the work in because I'm only the catalyst. If um, if they don't put the work in between the meetings, then nothing's going to happen. So I work with manufacturing. I've got a, a, a wood floor um, company and the sister company that actually um, go and fit, pro- uh, provide and fit the wood floors. They've changed the whole focus of their client base since working with me. And I can go in and ask the naive questions. Why are you doing that? You know, what's going on there? Um, And from that, we can then create a strategic plan that if people are prepared to put the time and the work in, all of the companies that I've worked with have become more profitable, better work-life balance, better staff um, relationships and more responsibility taken by people, not just at the top. Um, has come out of our working together, and it's it's been brilliant. What I'm another thing I'm really interested in, Gina, and, I, and I've taken this off your website is there's a little phrase here where you're saying that you deliver a practical and jargon-free approach. Now that resonates with me, Gina, for the following reason: I have spent the majority of my career trying to make things simple in the marketing space. I've been a career marketeer, and I see companies making things appallingly complicated for themselves, putting strategies together that are time-consuming and, in effect, sometimes suck the life out of the business. And sometimes I find that with my clients, if I mention the word strategy, they'll almost want to try and hurry me to the door. It's almost as if that word just creates fear because people think that you're going to create this horrible, great, big, complicated process to put them through. So a lot of what I've tried to do with people is to say, actually, we can put a marketing strategy together without even using the word strategy and without using some of the jargonistic phrases that have become embedded um, you know, from the intellectual side of marketing, like the four P's and Maslow's hierarchy of needs and all of that sort of thing. I imagine there's just as much jargon around creating excellence within organizations and it would seem from what you're saying that you've found a nice easy way to make that process acceptable and exciting for companies. I think it's really important to recognize that things don't need to be complicated. Mm. It's the simple things done consistently over time Mm. that actually make a difference. Mm -hmm. It's my belief, and I may be wrong, I might be being a bit cynical, (laughs) but I think people make it very complicated because then you create a dependency model. Yes. Um, I don't create a dependency model. I'm very happy, um, you know, for people to fly. If they've done that, I've done my job. Um, very often now when I work with companies over a lot much longer period of time, they choose to use me to be a, to help keep them accountable um, and to do other things. But I think it's incredibly important that things are understandable. Yeah. The more jargonistic they are, the more wriggle room there is for people to misunderstand, to think it's somebody else's job. Um, 
every industry has got its jargon. And I now know wood jargon and garden jargon (laughs) and financial garden, dark jargon. And part of my role is to say, what are you talking about? What's that? How does that add value? And I suppose for me, everything comes down to if you're a primary school teacher, you take things down to a simple level. And simple doesn't mean that it requires no thought. Simple means that you just take away all of the fluff and the frill and you get to the heart of the matter. And for me, adults are just big children. Yeah. And so why would you choose to dress it up and make it flowery and more complicated? Um, and the other thing is, you know, I was ahead for 21 years and so I had plenty of time to refine things down into stuff that worked not only in my own school but in lots of other organizations and teachers will give you a very hard time if you try to make things more complicated than they are because Mm. they too are always trying to make things appear simple and straightforward yeah they're a very exacting audience not half as exacting as children i have to say they're by far the most critical audience that you'll ever get so dealing with uh, with senior managers and leaders and staff of other organizations is really easy peasy <laughs> after you've faced you know the third form on the fourth rainy lunchtime um in november <laughs> What would you say then is the the one thing that you'd like the listeners of the Marketing and Finance podcast to take from the, the vast amount of experience you've had helping both the educational establishment and companies find excellence? Can I have three things? <laughs> of course you can. <laughs> the first is that everything you do or say, the way in which you do it or say it, whether you do it or say it at all, is your choice Mm -hmm. and every choice comes with consequences not choosing and just letting things ride often comes with more far-reaching consequences than actually taking a decision Mm -hmm. and i think people are often frightened about taking the wrong decision when if they see it as taking a different decision and each decision will take you in a slightly different route um i think that's really important The second thing is, it's all about what you believe. If you look at the difference between highly successful people and people who are not, the difference is highly successful people believe that they will be successful. Mm. And they take the decisions that make them successful. Now, they fail just as much, if not more, than unsuccessful people, but they see failure as a way to learn, not something to be avoided. So Dyson made 2,000 prototypes who had a working Hoover. Mm-hmm. If he'd stopped at 1,999, he wouldn't be the multimillionaire he is now. Yes. He believed that he would succeed. And I think, you know, there are lots of stories. Roger Bannister, for example, did the four-minute mile, even though people said that if you ran that fast, you would die. Yeah. And if you look at the footage, there are people in white coats holding oxygen bottles in the hope <laughs> that they might be able to revive him. Now, that is amazing enough. But what amazes me even more is within a month of him doing that, 30 other people had run a sub four minute mile. Yes. So if you believe you'll succeed, you will do that. If you believe you'll fail, it's a done deal. 
And the third thing that I think that is really important is your success as a company is based on relationships. And it's important to create and sustain good, respectful, loving, and I mean that in a very particular way, relationships. And by loving, I mean that actually that you appreciate people for what they do and that you are have high standards, you expect a lot from them, but that you also nurture goodwill, that you don't take people for granted and that you, you know, there's a human side that takes account of their challenges but doesn't let them off the hook, but just deals with them in a way that is really humane. Awesome. Gina, looking outside of what you do on a day-to-day basis, one of the questions I always like to ask my guests is to think about a marketing campaign you've seen or a product or or something that's caught your attention recently that's made you really think, wow, they've nailed it. Can you tell me what that is and what you took from it? Um, I've been looking at, I'm I'm terrible with names, um, ClickFunnels, the guy that runs ClickFunnels. If you hold on one second, I will. Russell Bronson. And I've been studying some of his stuff around how um, to make the bridge between helping people recognize um, that what you're trying to sell them is something that they want rather than something that they need. Mm. So I've just, um, I'm just setting up an internet a business where people can um, access um, programs and training and support online and it's a whole big departure for me and I've been looking at uh, Russell Bronson's work um, and he seems to have modelled excellence and taken it from all sorts of different stations and distilled it into a program that appears to work very well. And is there a book you've read recently that similarly has made you think wow I really I can really learn a lot from that? Well, actually, his book... His book, I wondered whether that would be the answer as well. Um, And um, he's been offering it free Uh um, online. It's worth having a look. Um, That's been really, really good. Um, And I've been also following a course called The Tribe by a guy called Stu. I can't remember his surname. Um, And that's been incredibly powerful too. Gina, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you tonight. So much to think about, trying to find excellence, trying to make sure that excellence comes from the top down so that everybody in an organisation understands what delivering a great customer experience means. Hopefully a lot of people listening to the podcast are going to want to get in touch with you, Gina. So what is the best way that they should connect with you? Um, They can go through ginagardnerassociates.co.uk or they can go through genuinely-u.com. Mm-hmm. Um, genuinely-u.com is very much about personal development, and I think everything starts with you. There's a free seven-part um, video course that people can sign up for, which uh, that sets out the principles for living a happy and successful life. And if people would like to sign up for that, then um, they'll find not only that, but lots of other free information um, on there there's lots of stuff on youtube um, or if they want to contact me personally georgina.gardener gardener with an i at gmail.com i'd be very pleased to hear from them that uh, seven part video series certainly sounds very interesting gina so i'd encourage people to uh, pop along and sign up for that i'll include links to the website's 
in the show notes for this podcast, which you can find at rogeredwards.co.uk forward slash MAF. That's rogeredwards.co.uk forward slash MAF. Gina, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you fascinating and motivating at the same time let me wish you every success for the future and hopefully we'll be able to meet in person at some point in the future that would be absolutely brilliant thank you very much for having me on the show it's been great thanks a lot thanks for listening to the marketing and finance podcast do please look at the show notes at rogeredwards.co.uk forward slash maf for links to the topics apps and books we discussed If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review on iTunes. If you are a business person, financial services professional or journalist and have a marketing or finance story to tell, please get in touch. You could be the next guest on the show. And do remember, nothing we talk about on the show is financial advice of any kind. It's just thoughts and opinions, okay? Okay.